experts tell us that feeling that we're significant, that we matter, that we're important, that's a basic human desire that we all have. And so do you want to be great? (laughs) I think you do. And I think you'd like others to know that you are. It may be more obvious in some of us than in others, but I think we'd be surprised at how often we find ourselves trying to impress others and convince them of just how great we are. On this Discover the Word podcast, Daniel Ryan Day is going to lead the group in some conversations called, Who is the Greatest? We live in a world where we desire to be great. And what I'm hoping is that by talking about greatness and hearing Jesus' invitation to discover what true greatness looks like, I think by the end, we will feel a weight lifted from our shoulders, at least until we try to put the weight back on again. And so pull a chair up to the table with Daniel, Mark Dehan, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder. Let's talk about who is the greatest. And this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. In this episode of the podcast, Daniel is going to take us to several places where Jesus' disciples were kind of getting competitive with this desire to be great. They wanted to be more significant, more important. They just didn't want to be great. They wanted to be greater than the others. But, you know, isn't that what drives us oftentimes to be better, to be great? I think this is going to be a good week of conversations. Who is the greatest? But uh, before we get started with the conversations, let's have Daniel lead us in a word of prayer. Uh, This is going to challenge us on a lot of levels. And so, Daniel? Lord, we're thankful for a new day of life and uh, for just how relevant and modern the scriptures can be in so many ways, Um, how we see this ancient squabble of greatness and how it's the same squabble that we find ourselves in today. So Lord, I pray that you would just meet us in this ancient story and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to see in this and courage to follow where the conversation leads. Yeah, we love you, Lord, and we lift all this up to you and leave it in your hands. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Daniel. And so uh, do you think this desire to be great that we're going to talk about and have others notice that in you Is that not a great big deal for you? You're more humble than that? Well, let's see if you feel that way after this first conversation. Think of a time when you were passed up for a promotion that you felt you deserved, or maybe someone else was congratulated for something and your contribution to that thing was overlooked. Do you have a story that comes to mind? And specifically include, like, how did you feel about that? Well, you know, it's funny. I'll go all embarrassing here. I remember a person who worked closely with me and was responsible for kind of getting me booked in various places when I was speaking a lot. And I remember at one point they said to me, I don't understand why you're not a bigger deal. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. But I was like simultaneously humiliated and ashamed and like, yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't understand that either. Why are I a bigger deal? <laughs> Maybe another nuance to this particular question would be when a job gets posted that you want to apply for and you don't really qualify for it, but in your heart, you're like, I think I should be this person. And then you don't get the job and someone else does. It can have that same painful experience Mm -hmm. because in our world, greatness often equals promotion, getting promoted to the next thing. All right. So hold that with you. Here's another question. All right. Think of a time when you were in a strategy meeting and specifically someone was in that meeting that you wanted to impress Maybe there are other people in the room and you felt pressure to have something brilliant to say. Have you been there before? I'm there right now. (laughs) I'm with you, Bill. I think much of my life has been that push, that inner push to say something that that got noticed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's that word noticed that Mm -hmm. jumps out because in our world, often greatness equals recognition or being Mm -hmm. noticed. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. 
How about a time when you were with uh, a new group of people? So you haven't really met anybody yet, and you're further down the line with the invitation to share about yourself. And so you've heard all these people share, and it's your turn, and you feel that pressure to kind of one-up everything that's been said up to that point, or paint yourself in the best light possible. Have you been there before? For me, it's been the kind of situation where I try to explain what I do, but often those situations you're describing are with people who are still on a journey and haven't you know, really immersed into the Christian world. So they would have no idea what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I try to figure out how do I talk about this in a translatable way that doesn't sound bizarro, mm-hmm. you know, like, and I still want to represent my Christ accurately. You know, that so get all tangled up in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the challenge in a situation like that, Elisa, for me at least, is to help them understand that maybe what I do has importance to it, but mm-hmm. that doesn't make me important. Oh, that's interesting. It's the work itself that has the eternal value. Yeah, because sometimes in our world, greatness equals standing out in some way, painting ourselves in the best light possible. And often that goes with a title, right? Yep. What kind of title can we hang around yeah. in that or, yeah. or have yeah. somebody else hung around it? Yeah. Here's one that'll hit some of us close to home. Think about a situation on social media where you're like trying to pick the perfect photo. And you're trying to get like the perfect shot because you want whoever reads the caption or sees this photo to think, wow, your life is going great. Have you been there before? I have. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Does this have anything to do with like that end of the year Christmas newsletter? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Christmas cards. Yep. Yeah. Now the letter, the the long letter. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because in our world, greatness often is defined as having it all together. Things are going well, and it kind of relates to the last one of painting ourselves in the best light possible. We're all communicators here. When was the last time you felt pressure to say the perfect thing so that they walk away saying something, wow, that Daniel, everything he says is pretty brilliant. (laughs) I've never (laughs) thought about the scriptures that way before or whatever. Or maybe it's something you're writing and you want it to be perfect, not because you want it to be right, which is a good and valuable and important thing, but because you want to impress others that you're a real writer. Daniel, is this a therapy session? (laughs) So here's what's interesting is I was thinking through what greatness is because I ran into this passage of scripture we're going to read in a minute that talks about greatness. All of these were really easy to think of because they are things I've struggled with. And so it wasn't hard to come up with these examples. Do you mind if I just point to a few more first, Mart, before we read the passage? Because there's more therapy to be had. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So one of the ways connected to the saying the perfect thing, writing the perfect thing, greatness equals being unique or making an impact in some way in our world. I'm going to give you a bunch of examples in a row. For those of us who have been in sales, Wanting to sell the most for the sake of recognition, get your name on the wall or have a bell rung because of you just had the biggest sale or whatever. For those in maybe the medical field or who are maybe a scientist wanting to discover a breakthrough so that you can get published in a journal. Mm. For those who are reading a book or taking a course or studying a subject because they want to be an expert on something. They want to be recognized as the expert because oftentimes in our world, greatness equals expertise on a subject. And then I was thinking about this one too, and this one's kind of counterintuitive, but another way that we define greatness in our world, those who want to stand out by being on the fringes, right? Mm -hmm. And in Christianity, this often shows up when we're confessing our brokenness to one another and we like really want to emphasize how bad the things are that we've done, how badly we need Jesus. And so those are just a bunch of things as I was processing just the word greatness how I see that show up in my life. Are there any that I missed that you can think of? No, but I think you made the point that it touches all parts of our lives, right? So let's hold all of those with us and let's read the passage that we'll be talking about this week. So it's Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and we can just go around and read together. I'll start. They, the disciples, went on from there, the place where Jesus had just healed a child possessed by a demon, and passed through Galilee. 
He, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they didn't answer, because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. And he sat down then and called the twelve disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Yeah, so did you hear the argument there, arguing over who's the greatest? You know, sometimes we have to really dive into context to get an idea out of the scriptures that we can relate to. I think that one we can just relate to because we just admitted how many different ways that we run into the idea of greatness. Yeah, but you know, it always surprises me. Whenever I read a a part in the Gospels where it talks about them arguing, Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the disciples of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it just unnerves me to think that these guys were arguing about that. And I love that they're doing it kind of in a sneaky fashion. They're doing Mm -hmm. it apart from him. When he asks them something, they're silent. You know, I just think, oh boy, ding, ding, ding. Do we all relate to this? Yeah. To me, this idea of arguing about greatness was to the disciples what grumbling in the wilderness was to Israel. It was kind of their thing that they kept tripping up on. I mean, constantly we see the Israelites in the wilderness grumbling and complaining about one thing or another. But this isn't the only one of these conversations where they're exposed for (laughs) arguing about and wanting to be the greatest. I get the grumbling in the wilderness, but for some reason, when it comes to the disciples, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like, what's wrong with these guys? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, too, just to throw this in. I think greatness was a really big deal you know, mm-hmm. in their culture. And we've talked about that in a lot of conversations, You know, the whole honor of their culture. And they think they're hooking up with the big Messiah, and they expect certain roles and et cetera. You know, I'm not dumb enough right now to think you know God's going to pull me up to his right hand. So this is contextually a really big deal. And all your examples, Daniel, of what we then... Um, assign or our parallel world of greatness helps us understand how important this really was to them. Yeah. And so that's what I want to explore this week. And we're going to look at, Bill, you mentioned this isn't the only place this happens. There's quite a few places where they argue about greatness. And so we're going to look at a few of those together, but we're going to kind of anchor it on this Mark 9 passage. We live in a world where we're obsessed with whether it's being unique or standing out or accomplishing great things, becoming an expert, making an impact, having it all together, getting the promotion, all the things that we just listed out. And we desire these things. We desire to be great in whatever ways that we might define what greatness is. Even our desires, as we talked about at the end of being not great, are often hidden desires to be great or to stand out Mm -hmm. in some way. This isn't a new thing. Uh, This is something the disciples struggled with, which is encouraging to us, but it's also a pretty exhausting way to live. And what I'm hoping is that by diving into not only the context that we see the disciples in and what they mean by greatness and how they're arguing about it, I hope that we'll see ourselves in this story as well. And as a result of talking about greatness and hearing Jesus' invitation to discover what true greatness looks like, I think by the end, we will feel a weight lifted from our shoulders, at least until we try to put the weight back on again. In our first conversation, we talked about all of the different ways, I can't even say all, the different ways that greatness is defined, because I'm sure we missed some. Some of the different ways. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We had quite a list. Yeah, Yeah, because greatness in the world is kind of a big thing. In our culture, it's a big thing. And we hinted at, in the disciples' world, the idea of greatness is a big thing. In fact, we read a passage where they are arguing about who is the greatest. So I thought it would be helpful to talk about what the context is for this so that we can begin to understand maybe what the disciples meant by greatness as we begin to unpack this story from Mark 9 
verses 30 through 37. So just really quickly, what's happening in this story? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, it's the transfiguration of Jesus, which Mm -hmm. tells me that since Peter, James, and John were there and were so knocked out by the transfiguration that Peter makes a mess of things. If those three were arguing about who was the greatest, they kind of missed the point of the transfiguration. (laughs) Then they came down off the mountain and Jesus rescued a demonized boy who the disciples had not been able to rescue, Mm -hmm. which should have been another pretty clear indicator of who was and was not the greatest. Yeah, so in the context, Elisa, would you read Mark chapter 9, verse 30 for us? They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anybody to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. So you heard in that, they went on from that place. And so the question always we should ask when we run into some phrase like that is, well, what was the place that they were in? And the immediate context is exactly what Bill was just describing, this situation with a boy that had been demon-possessed for, it seems like, a very long time because this father has a history that he shares with the disciples and with Jesus of how often that he's been thrown into a fire and how often he has these seizures that almost kill him. And so this is that context. And so as Bill kind of referenced, the disciples had just witnessed greatness, both in the transfiguration and then in this miracle. But secondly, they witnessed a different kind of greatness in the dad, in that this dad had this humility to bring his son to people that he thought could help him because he knew he couldn't help his son. But then even more so, this is where we get that really famous prayer that has probably been so encouraging to many of us, help me with my unbelief. Hmm. So we have this great humility and this great faith by this dad who's willing to bring his son to people to help his son because he can't help him. And then to admit to Jesus, you know, I don't believe enough. So help me with my unbelief. Hmm. And then the final little piece of greatness that I see just in that story alone is the disciples asked Jesus, hey, why weren't we able to take care of this demon? And the sense that I get as Jesus responds with, this kind can only come out with prayer. This was a demon that had a lot of control over this boy. And as a result, it needed Jesus's power and Jesus's presence. It needed God to be the one to drive out this demon. You know what, Daniel, I don't want to sidetrack you here, but We've talked now about those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, being up on the mountain. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that didn't unnerve the other disciples. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. These three were like Jesus' favorite, and these are his boys. Mm-hmm. Well, what about us? And if when they got down then and weren't able to do the miracles that they thought they should, I wonder if they weren't a little bit angry at Jesus. Maybe, mm. yeah. And I was wondering also, Daniel, when Jesus says, this kind cannot come out but by anything but prayer, it brings in the greatness of the Father, where even Jesus is acknowledging that it's only in the Father's strength that he was able to do yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we see these pictures of greatness there, a great miracle, this great power of God driving out this demon, the great faith and humility of this dad who brings his son. That's the place that we see. Where does the story go from there? Bill, would you pick up with, so they pass through Galilee and then right after that? Sure. So they passed through Galilee. He, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. Yes, yeah, so let's pause there. So one of the things that jumps out to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but It's interesting to me, Jesus did not want anyone else to know where they were because he wanted this alone time with his disciples. He wanted this one-on-one time with them. You know, in our world, we often define greatness by the number of people that we influence or the number of people that hear a talk or the number of Mm -hmm. people that come to a church or something like that. And this isn't the only time in the Bible that we see Jesus focusing in on just a small group of people. So it's almost like in this moment, Jesus knew it was most important for him to pour into just them. And so they're kind of hiding. I don't know how you respond to that, but that stands out to me. Well, I think it's 
ironic that they'd start arguing about who's great when, in a weird way, he's actually just made them very special mm-hmm. yeah. by confiding this information in them. But they just can't take it in. Yeah. Isn't it true, too, Daniel, that really Jesus didn't want the movement to get too big? Mm. He really didn't want everybody to know who he was because yes. his plan was to die. I mean, his plan yeah. was not to put on the crown, yeah. or at least the kind of crown that right. that the people expected. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the next conversation where we see what they meant by greatness. Mm. But you're exactly right. Oftentimes, it almost feels like Jesus is intentionally pushing back against letting things get too big. So I wonder if even this has a little bit of a picture of how Jesus might define greatness. And again, maybe I'm reading too far into this. The Bible does not say this here. But we have this picture of him feeling like it's most important to invest in this small group of people versus a big group of people at this moment. And maybe that's not universal or anything like that, but just in this moment. Now, what is Jesus wanting to spend time talking with them about? Why he came. Yeah, which is? Which is ultimately to be the ultimate resolution of the problem that people have, which is alienation from the Creator. Yeah. It says that, Uh, He was saying to them, the son of man is to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. So he's describing exactly the mission that you mentioned, Bill, and that, Mark, you alluded to just a second ago. What is their response in that moment? They don't understand. Yeah. They're afraid. And then they go into talking about greatness. It is very ironic. Mm -hmm. I'm stuck on that. Mm -hmm. His mission is to tell them what his mission is. They don't understand They're afraid. Mm -hmm. Isn't it interesting how we get afraid of things we don't understand? And we don't ask for the help that we need because we're afraid. Right. His whole point was to stay low Mm -hmm. and stay under the radar, right? Yeah. And they wanted to be noticed, at least among themselves and maybe maybe among the public as well. Mm. So, of course, they wouldn't get it. Jesus is talking about dying, right? Like greatness doesn't equal death. Greatness equals ultimately throwing off Rome, which again, we'll talk about more in our next conversation. It means taking the throne. It means being the leader of Israel. That's what greatness should look like. So when Jesus is talking about death and all of that, sometimes because we know the whole story, we look at that and we're like, how did the disciples not get that? But in the moment, of course they didn't get that. That does not make any sense. And they may have not gotten it precisely because of the there that you had (laughs) us look at. I mean, they had just seen Jesus perform this amazing miracle Mm -hmm. who could kill him if he was capable of doing that three of them had seen him transfigured right and chatting conversationally with elijah and moses of all people Mm -hmm. two of the greatest heroes of israel Mm -hmm. who could kill him that's interesting yeah Whereas as we look at it, looking back on the story, it seems like they should have been informed by those events. Maybe they were confused by them. Yeah, absolutely. They thought they were on the winning side for sure, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that's kind of why they joined up, isn't it? Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting, if you think about the there, is just the difference in the response between the dad and the story that we just talked about, who admits, you know, I don't have enough faith. Help me with my unbelief. And the disciples who don't understand, but they're afraid to ask. They're afraid to admit that they don't get it. They're afraid to ask Jesus, hey, can you explain that a little more? That doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense. And as I was thinking about that in preparation for this conversation, I was thinking about how later in the story, I bet they wish they had asked. (laughs) Because (laughs) when they see Jesus being arrested and then crucified, those three days had to have been so painful after they had watched Mm. Jesus killed. In reality, if we look at how they respond to Jesus's death, they're not expecting resurrection. They are surprised by the resurrection. And so I'm just imagining as Mark is starting to pull together this gospel and he's talking to Peter or whoever, who's kind of the source material for him as he's writing these stories down. I bet when they told that part of the story, they're thinking to themselves, man, I wish I had had the humility to just ask Jesus. That might have saved a lot of pain later on. Mm -hmm. So then the story continues, but they were silent for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Maybe part of the reason they missed what Jesus was saying was because they were focused on a different conversation, which is who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the phrase 
they were silent jumped out to me because I was thinking about situations in my life where I've been silent when I've been caught being silly about something like when my wife asks me why I'm in a bad mood and it's because like my favorite sports team lost or something like that. Well, I guess I'm actually thinking for them and so identifying is that because they had a specific agenda, greatness, they missed what God was doing. Mm -hmm. That to me is where I slip, you know, because I have an agenda of what I think is right. I can often miss what God is really pointing me towards. Yeah, and I think that really is maybe one of the biggest pops for me in this conversation as well, is that sometimes we're so focused on greatness that we actually miss the real picture of greatness that's before us. And as we look deeper into this story in Mark and some others in the Gospels, we're going to see that the disciples were so focused on themselves that they missed what was really happening right in front of them. Does that sound like us at all? Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast, and you're at the table today with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day, as Daniel leads us through the series titled, Who is the Greatest? And so you're beginning to get the impression that Jesus isn't all about the bigger is better path to greatness. Well, the conversation will continue after we take this quick break. Well, here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, it is our mission to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And one of the ways we do that is through Our Daily Bread Media. I would encourage you to go to odb.org media to see the Bible come alive before your eyes and ears with Our Daily Bread media podcasts, films, episodic video series, and daily devotional content created to help you become more like Christ each day. I can almost guarantee that what you'll find there is more than you thought Our Daily Bread media would provide. We're calling it our media hub, and I would encourage you to check it out. It's at odb.org media. And now let's continue to explore how Jesus addresses the question, who is the greatest? And see how he points out that the path to greatness isn't always bigger is better. What is something small that has really great power? A mosquito. Yeah, there you go. I've actually read an essay not long ago, A Baby, and I Mm -hmm. loved it. You know, you could look at a ruler, you could look at a politician, you could look at a movie star, but, you know, really a baby is the one all heads turn toward (laughs) and can totally capture your attention. That was a very interesting insight. Mm -hmm. I thought about an acorn. Yeah. Mm. Out of a tiny acorn, the mighty oak grows. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. What about like atoms that are split? So an atom is a very, very small thing, but when it's split, it turns into a very big explosion. Mm-hmm. Or bacteria is a small thing that can get mm-hmm. people very sick if it's the wrong kind of bacteria. Mm-hmm. Or back to my example, a sperm and an egg, yeah. you know, create mm-hmm. a human. That's wow. right. When light particles, which we can't even see in some ways, the individual particles of light, mm-hmm. when they are focused, what do they become? A laser. A laser that can cut things, right? So you have all these mm-hmm. little tiny things that can become very powerful things. A book can change the world. What about words? Do words have power? They're small mm-hmm. things. Yeah, just the wrong word said yeah. in the wrong way. Yeah. And the right word offered in the yeah. right moment. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Friend or enemy. Yeah. Love, love or, or hate, hate, right? So over the past few years, I've been surprised, especially as I've been reading the Bible, how often God uses really small things in really big ways. And if you think about the story of the Bible, he uses this small nation mm. and that nation of Israel becomes Jesus's earthly family. Or think about Mary. She's an obscure, unknown young woman, and she becomes the mother of Jesus. Jesus grew up in a small backwoods town. One of the disciples goes, what good can come from Nazareth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that place? And then Jesus spent most of his life with a small group of people teaching in small villages around Israel. God uses these small people, small places, almost you would say insignificant, 
before God gets a hold of them. And so let's continue talking through this story where part of Jesus's explanation for greatness is to use something small. And we see this in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Elisa, would you read that for us? Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, Who was the greatest? He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be the first must be the last of all, and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Now, this story is loaded with different ideas and phrases, and so we're just going to slowly start unpacking some of these phrases. I want to start by revisiting what the disciples were arguing about. And we're going to see that this isn't the first time that they argue about what we talked about in a previous conversation about being the greatest, because there's other passages that describe this as well. And I think by looking at some of these other ones, we're going to get a picture of maybe what they meant by who is the greatest. In the Gospel of Matthew, the exact same story is told. And listen for a little bit of nuance here. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So what's different there? They're asking Jesus a question instead of arguing with each other. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. But they also add the phrase kingdom of heaven. Now, that is a loaded phrase in the Bible. What would the disciples be thinking about as they're asking Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Don't they really mean who's going to rule in the future and in the present, right? Mm-hmm. And turning over all of the, the mess in Rome and you know, creating a new kingdom on earth, but one that's eternal. Is that right? I think so. When they're talking about the kingdom of heaven, they have a very specific context that they're expecting that to happen. And it's around these prophecies about this Messiah that would come. And what was their perspective on what kind of Messiah there would be or leader that there would be for this kingdom of heaven? They pictured a military hero. Yeah, a military hero. So when they're asking who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, there's this underlying idea in the back of their minds of this picture of the Messiah, of who they expect the Messiah to be, to be this military hero, but also this representative of God to the people. Mm. Daniel, couldn't at the very same time that they had that kind of great expectation of glory, they still could have been, I'm guessing, unnerved by the fact that among their little group, Jesus had his pets. Hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. teacher's pets. And he had taken three of them up to the mountain with him, and the rest had mm-hmm. been left behind. And so they probably had this great sense of anticipation of something really big, but wondering, you know, aren't we all, or who among us is going to get to be tied to that greatness? Yeah, that's right. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, a little bit later, there's a situation where they kind of define a little better what they are thinking about when it comes to maybe this question of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That story happens in Matthew chapter 20. And Bill, I kind of asked you off air, (laughs) if you could just prepare to net that out for us. What is the story that happens in Matthew chapter 20? Well, the theme is once again about greatness in the kingdom, but this time James and John, the sons of Zebedee, send their mom to talk to Jesus for them, to get them the best places. And the best places are where you sit on the right hand and on the left of the throne, the place of the ruler who would be Messiah. Yeah. So like today, it'd be like someone coming to Jesus and saying, hey, when you become president of the United States, could my sons be the secretary of state and the vice president? Right, like we want the same type of authority that Jesus has, just a little less. So that's kind of the picture I think that we see. And then Jesus responds with a story that we see in the Gospel of Luke as well. And we're going to read that. Mark, Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. Would you go ahead and read that for us? Yeah, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus told them, In this world, Kings and the great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it'll be different. 
Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Hmm. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. For I am among you as one who serves. Yeah, so in the book of Luke, they actually, the story, they argue twice over the same thing of who is the greatest. And Jesus responded with this story, which is the same way he responds to the story with the mother of the sons of Zebedee in Matthew. And that response is to describe a very different type of kingdom than what they're expecting. What are the characteristics of the kingdom that Jesus is actually bringing? service is, mm-hmm. you know, front and center through the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that he uses the language of servanthood, which actually was slavery, mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. a time when a huge portion of the Roman Empire were slaves. Mm-hmm. And even in Israel, people had bond servants and, and uh, people that had indentured themselves to others as their servants. So this was a concept that everybody knew, but nobody was arguing over who could be the slave. They were all arguing (laughs) over who could be the greatest. Mm -hmm. So imagine the disconnect. I mean, you just wonder, what in the world were they, how could they make sense of that? Mm -hmm. In fact, this is one of the times that Jesus actually gives us a picture of the difference between the way the world defines greatness and the way that he does, which I think really illustrates that disconnect, Mart, that you're describing. He said, you know, in the world, leaders lord it over people, but I'm actually a leader that serves and I'm inviting you to be leaders who serve. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to even expound on that a little bit more. He said, who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? He's admitting to his disciples, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. in this world, the person at the table is the greatest. That's how the world looks at it. But not in my kingdom, not in the kingdom of heaven that I'm bringing. It's not the person at the table. It's the one who serves. So again, it's just this backwards way of presenting the type of leadership that Jesus is bringing, the type of servant that he is, the type of kingdom that he is building. It's upside down. It's an upside down kingdom. So in some ways, this isn't the first time that Jesus is describing this upside down kingdom because even in the Sermon on the Mount, he's already describing what we would call an upside down kingdom. People being blessed who the world would look at and say they aren't blessed. They're not happy. They're not people that have been looked on by God with favor. But also you could say that this is where Jesus is really starting to dig deeply into what this upside down kingdom looks like, where he is comparing you see this in the world but I am pushing back on that this way. And we see that here as he's talking about, you know, in this world, it's the person at the table is the greatest. But I tell you that in my kingdom, the kingdom I'm bringing, it's actually the one who serves. It's smallness, not bigness, that equals greatness. Yeah, is bigger always better? Is power always the way to greatness? According to Jesus, maybe not challenging conversation about what makes a person great. You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And in this episode of the podcast, we're examining the question, who is the greatest? And in this next part of the conversation, we're going to go to another surprising and challenging aspect of this because Jesus connects greatness to something that I don't think we ever would. Would you ever put greatness and forgiveness together. Would you say that the greatest people you know were the best at forgiveness? Well, let's listen. I'm hoping I'm not the only one here to admit this. And knowing you all, I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Have you ever been in a situation where someone asked for forgiveness and you almost felt empowered because you could say yes or no to them And so instead of immediately forgiving, maybe you hesitated, even if it was just for a second or something, because you realized that you had that power in that moment and wondered if you should give in and forgive. I totally know what you're talking about. And Daniel, it's, it's very raw and it's like a dive in deep moment here. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, my father left us when I was five and I remember in my thirties, I was having dinner with him and he actually said, 
to the effect, would you forgive me? It was kind of like being on a knife edge. You know, I felt two responses in myself. I mean, my gut was, of course, I can be a people pleaser. I've always wanted my father to love me. Sure, I'll forgive you. But I actually felt this um, nudge to sit with it for a second and Mm -hmm. really let his request for forgiveness sink in deep into my heart. So I did pause for a minute. And then I said, of course. But there was another moment when a friend asked forgiveness, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And I had remembered my father's issue and my pausing to intentionally receive that healing that came with his request. But I could tell, I felt that moment when I could hold the forgiveness back from my friend. And I thought, ooh, this is ugly. Yeah. So I think you're raising a really intense battle we have. Yeah. For me, it wasn't so much a matter of withholding forgiveness as there was knowing that even if I forgave them, I would never be able to trust them in the same way again. Mm. And it wasn't that I was withholding trust. I just didn't feel like trust was necessarily going to be a wise thing to do. Yeah, I get that. You know, I'm kind of wondering too, if that kind of situation or moment isn't one that we tend to forget just because it is so painful. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you ask the question, I couldn't think of one immediately, but I could think of a television drama series I've been watching recently. And I remember so clearly the moment in which harm was done to a person that that you tend to love on the program. Mm -hmm. And there was that moment when they were asked for forgiveness and they said no. And I remember mm. my emotions were like, oh, wait a minute, what are you saying? Yeah. You know, it was like this this good person character in the program was falling over themselves by refusing to forgive. Mm. But that's the kind of thing you're talking yeah. about, the realism of it. Yeah. On the other side, we can think of those moments where we expected somebody to withhold forgiveness because someone, maybe in a courtroom setting, someone did something super evil to that family or to that community, and the outpouring of forgiveness from the family that was harmed throws us back, right? We celebrate right. those moments because we almost expected forgiveness to be withheld, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I think in both of those situations, mm-hmm. what we're pulling up here is something that within us sometimes can be gross, right? This power that we feel in whether we forgive or not. And Bill, to your point, it's not a bad thing to protect ourselves, In situations where maybe there's been abuse or someone has consistently done the same things over and over again. And Mm -hmm. so maybe even a part of true forgiveness is protecting Mm -hmm. ourselves too in those situations. But either way, forgiveness is tricky, especially in the situations that we've just described. And as we continue in this conversation on greatness, what we're going to see is that the idea of greatness and the idea of forgiveness are connected by the context in which this story that we've been talking about is set in. Now, we've been mostly talking about Mark chapter 9, where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. In Matthew chapter 18, in another conversation about who is the greatest, the disciples say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we described what they probably meant by the kingdom of heaven. But it's interesting, that's in Matthew 18. Even just that chapter by itself has almost a Christianese feel to it because oftentimes we use it to describe like, oh, we need a Matthew 18 kind of forgiveness in this situation because the story builds from this conversation on greatness to Peter ultimately asking Jesus, how often should I forgive? And so that's where we'll see greatness and forgiveness connected. Now, obviously, we don't have time to read an entire chapter of Matthew. So we're just going to net out each of these major sections. So the first section, they ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, what does he do? He brings some show and tell. Yeah, he picks up a child and mm-hmm. he, he uh, puts the child among them and yeah. says, unless you change and become like children, you won't enter the kingdom of God. And mm-hmm. so as we welcome children, as we welcome the small, mm-hmm. we too are welcomed. And I think we've talked about it before on other programs, but children were largely unvalued in the culture, neither seen nor heard mm-hmm. in a sense. They, they just weren't that important until they were big enough to be considered as functioning adults. And so Mm -hmm. the fact that 
in an earlier conversation, we saw that Jesus used slavery and servanthood as a picture of greatness would have been culturally shocking. So would have been using a child as a Mm -hmm. picture of greatness. And children actually become a theme of Matthew 18, and they get referenced over and over again with this phrase, these little ones. Mm. And so Jesus, kind of in this context of having this child there, he then begins to describe maybe some of the ways that it looks like to welcome him as you would welcome a child or what it looks like to embrace the kingdom as you would a child. The first major section of that is a section that is on the topic of stumbling blocks. The title in my Bible says temptations to sin. And those are Matthew 18 verses six through nine. And Jesus says, if any one of you puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great mega millstone, because Mm. the Greek word great is mega, so a huge millstone, were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. So woe to you if you let a stumbling block come in front of one of these children. And even that term stumbling block actually shows up in the scriptures a few times. In this context, it feels like something that's getting in the way of a child believing in Jesus. And often throughout the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel 14.3, we see a stumbling block being attached to idols or attached to worshiping something else. We see stumbling blocks being silver and gold as a stumbling block. Earlier in Matthew, in chapter 16, Peter tells Jesus not to let himself be killed, and Jesus calls him a stumbling block. And then in Romans, so Paul picks up on this stumbling block language later, talks about judging one another can be a stumbling block, that our freedom that we have in Christ can be a stumbling block to one another. And that even Jesus's crucifixion, 1 Corinthians one twenty three, will be a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So this idea of stumbling block is these are the things that get in the way of believing Jesus is who he says he was and of following him. So something to trip over, right? Yeah, something to trip over. After Jesus defines greatness by putting this child in front of them, he then goes on to describe how Uh, We need to protect these great kids, not put a stumbling block in front of them. And then he tells a parable. Bill, look at Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. You don't have to Mm -hmm. read it, but what is the parable that Jesus tells after he talks about stumbling blocks? Well, he talks about a person who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. And will not this person go pursue that one in order to bring them back to safety? Mm -hmm. This is how far God will go to rescue the little ones. If one of the hundred goes away, he's going to go after them. Hmm. That is how valuable that they are to him. And I think by telling this story, what he's helping the disciples, helping all who are listening kind of think about is this is what it looks like Mm -hmm. to care for one of these little ones. Daniel, I love how you're continually drawing our attention to the little ones, because I think we overlook that. And we we treat each of these interactions or parables as a separate story, if you mm-hmm. will. Yeah. But they're all connected by the fact that they have to do with what we devalue children, but what God values as greatness. Mm. Yeah. He rejoices over every single one is how that story ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how far he goes after these little ones. He rejoices over every single one. Then we get into a really famous passage that describes if someone sins in the church. It really takes another twist, though, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Because it shows that in going to the rescue Mm -hmm. means taking the risk Mm -hmm. often of confronting, lovingly confronting the person who's harmed you. And sometimes that's exactly what love demands that we do. I mean, if we genuinely love our kids, we don't want to see them doing self-destructive things. Mm -hmm. And so we confront and challenge them about that because we love them, not because we hate them. Mm. And I think that's the whole significance of what Jesus is saying is this has to come out of the right kind of heart. Yeah. Yeah. And that that love that you're describing, that great love, if I can add that qualifier to it, is a love that deals with sin and brokenness. It's not one that ignores it. And honestly, I need to hear that. My generation needs to hear that because I tend to be someone that I don't want to get into an uncomfortable conversation 
with someone. I don't think that's a generation. <laughs> <laughs> it's a human plight. Yeah. <laughs> right. And of course, the other reason I think putting that in the context of love is just so important is because oftentimes confrontation doesn't come from a heart of love, right? Mm-hmm. We're supposed to speak mm-hmm. truth in love. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, even this passage has been used to beat up other people and confront them on things yeah. with not love. But rightly understood, it really requires humility, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. You know. And Paul says that in Galatians 6, if a brother or sister's overtaken in a fault, yeah. yep. go to them in a spirit of gentleness. And it's difficult to do. Not only for their if, sake, but for your and own. And if we ever wonder what really is meant by that section— Peter asks Jesus, kind of in response to that, well, how often should I forgive someone? Mm. And Jesus' response is to respond not with a, a clean answer, but to respond with a story. And it's a story about people who had a great debt, and there was an extravagant forgiveness that was given to that debt. And then that person walked out, and instead of showing that same extravagant forgiveness of debt, they did not show forgiveness to someone who owed them. And so can you see how this Matthew 18 chapter, and of course it starts before 18 and goes on into 19 because they didn't have chapter breaks, but can you see how all of these stories together build on this one idea of true greatness? Which is really a surprise. And it's as if the story unfolds, it's not what you would expect. Yeah. Greatness, according to Jesus, looks like a child. It looks like protecting one another from the things that they might struggle with. It means going to the extreme, leaving the 99 for the one, because they are so valuable, rejoicing over every single one. It looks like confronting sin and brokenness with love, and it looks like being filled with the same great forgiveness that God has shown us, that we show that same great forgiveness to others. Another great insight about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, uh, we're great when we're good at forgiving. I'm not sure we would have made that connection ourselves. Well, we will conclude this conversation about what it means to be great in Jesus' upside-down, or is it right-side-up kingdom, right after we take a moment to look ahead to what we'll be studying together in our next podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, our friend Vivian Mabuni joins the group to study some passages in 2 Kings to discover what's true about God from 2 Kings. Now, there are some strange stories in 2 Kings. In fact, this is how Viv describes one of the stories that we'll be looking at. When I read this passage, I picture Jack Sparrow in, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean with like a crown on and eating a big turkey leg and running off with the treasures and hiding it and all of that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That sounds weird. And so what incident is she talking about and how would we find something that's true about God there? Well, it's always a fun but insightful and challenging time when Vivian Mabuni is at the table with us. And so she joins Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day in exploring what's true about God from 2 Kings on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of this conversation about who is the greatest. I feel like I just have to start off this conversation by saying, hasn't this been just the greatest discussion (laughs) we've ever had? And Dan, you have been the greatest leader. You know, it's funny. It is a word that we use a lot. Greatness, Mm -hmm. great. And we often Mm -hmm. define it in very different ways than we've seen Jesus defining it this week. In fact, we started our whole series talking about all the different ways that we try to pursue greatness in our world and how heavy of a burden that that actually is to try to be great Mm -hmm. and how hopefully as we've kind of unpacked greatness according to Jesus, that that burden has been lifted in some ways. What are some of the things that we've seen Jesus as he pushes into what greatness really looks like? One of the themes that you've used, and I think it fits for several of them, is Jesus' upside down kingdom. And, you know, so one of the first things we talked about is small versus big mm-hmm. is what Jesus embraces. And the response that happens inside me, and we really went deep into this, is a 
great relief that I don't have to puff myself into a certain spot. You know, God embraces my humanity, my smallness. Yeah, the right kind of little really is a big thing. Yeah. 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 And I think the contrast between the servant and the served Mm -hmm. and the example that Jesus repeatedly uses of a child, a little one. Yeah. I think those things really speak to the whole issue of what really is great. Mm-hmm. But it all takes a second look, doesn't it? Mm. So, yeah. Kind of like you got to take another take on it. Mm. And you know, Elisa, you mentioned the phrase that I've used a few times, upside down kingdom. The only thing I struggle with, and I wish I remembered to say this every time, is I think what's really happening is Jesus's kingdom is right side up <laughs> and ours is the upside down version of greatness. Yeah, we've turned it upside down. Yeah. yeah. And so we talk about it as an upside down kingdom because it mm. feels upside down to how we see the world. But maybe Jesus is teaching us what it means to have a right side up perspective of greatness. That's great. In our last conversation, we talked about how that even includes great forgiveness and protecting those who are vulnerable, meaning the little ones, the children. And so today I want to finish this series talking about a phrase that shows up at the end of the Mark 9 passage that we've spent the most time in. And so, Elisa, if you'll just read that and then listen for the the last, like, maybe two lines where it ends. That's what I want to focus on today. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. One of the things that we've encouraged each other with in reading the scriptures is to pay attention when ideas or words are repeated over and over again in a verse. And here in Mark 9, verse 37, we see the word welcomes show up four times. Now, when we think of welcoming, we might think of like having somebody over for dinner or something like that. Uh, This word welcome in the Greek is dekomai which means to receive, to accept, to bear with. Hmm. And it's used throughout the New Testament in a variety of places. And we're going to look at one in particular that really helps capture what this word means. It can sometimes refer to like receiving an object, but that's pretty rare in the New Testament. Usually dekomai is used to talk about receiving somebody hospitably and specifically receiving an official representation of like a government official or someone who's been commissioned by someone else. So you're welcoming this ambassador or you're welcoming this person who's representing the king. And probably one of the best examples of this, and again, listen for the word welcomes, is Matthew chapter 10, verse 40 through 42. And as we're listening, uh, listen for the idea of welcoming in this passage. Mark, would you read Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42 for us? Okay, verse 40. Anyone who receives you receives me, and anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you'll be given the same reward as a prophet. And if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you'll be given a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you'll surely be rewarded. So that word receives that Mark read there is the word welcomes. It's the same dekomai word that we saw in Mark nine, where Jesus is talking about welcoming a child. If you welcome me, you welcome the father. If you welcome a prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. If you welcome a righteous person, it's like you're righteous. So these parallel ideas of what it looks like to welcome. So if we apply that back to the Mark chapter nine passage, Jesus puts a child in their midst. What kind of dignity is he giving to the child by building off of this idea of welcoming? It's almost as if the child is God's representative in that moment. Yeah. That's a great way to put it, Bill. Daniel, in that passage in Mark, does it say, welcome in my name? 
Does it attach in Jesus' mm-hmm. name? Mm-hmm. It does. Okay. Uh-huh. In the Matthew passage, it doesn't mention, I don't think, welcome in my name. Does that mean we have to say, you know, in Jesus' name, I welcome you? Oh, yeah. Does it have to be up front? <laughs> what I would think is Jesus is driving at, based on the rest of this context, is because he's building on these ideas of greatness as defined by service to others, it feels like what Jesus is saying is welcoming this child in the same spirit that I would welcome them. Yeah, okay. And the same spirit that I hope you would welcome me, which leads me to all kinds of discussions we've had about, you know, can we welcome each other as if we are the image bearers, you know, that God has made us to be? Yeah. I think we've talked about it before, but um, when it talks about a name in the Bible, it's talking about something that's indicative of who a person is. Mm-hmm. who their core self is, the real person. And so when Jesus says, in my name, it's kind of like in accordance with who I am. Yeah. Okay, so it's not just name dropping then. Right. <laughs> Although it wouldn't be bad to say, you know what? I welcome you in the name of Christ. That wouldn't be a bad thing to say, but we don't have to say it to welcome them in the spirit of Christ. Might be a little weird in some situations, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I found in life, oftentimes it does seem kind of, It just doesn't seem appropriate Mm -hmm. in spirit to always have to attach the name of Jesus when doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. Or it even feels fake. Yeah. You don't really want to welcome them, but because it's in Jesus' name, you feel like you should. So in the same way that we call ourselves Christians, right? Bearing the name of Christ as a title for ourselves, that because we represent Christ in the world, that when we welcome a child as representatives of Christ in the world— then we are welcoming them in his name. Mm. But even more so and even deeper than that is what he's saying about these children, right? Mm. Bill, you talked in one of our previous conversations about how little value children had in this culture. Elisa, you've led us through a whole series on talking about how children were viewed in this culture. Jesus is putting on them this title of decomai, of his ambassadors, of his representatives in the world. By receiving the children as his ambassadors and message bearers, you are receiving him. Hmm. That is powerful. Yeah, especially in light of the fact that Jesus said if we're to believe in him, we need to have the faith of a little child. Mm -hmm. Right. That kind of makes all of us children. Right, absolutely. Hmm. Especially if one of the main things that Jesus is driving at over and over again is us having humility like a child. Mm -hmm. Seeing ourselves as if we bring as little as children bring into the world which I think is a part of what Jesus is driving at too. I think also though, it's helpful again with context because Jesus kind of builds on this just a few verses later because you have this picture of greatness that Jesus gives by welcoming a child and saying, welcome this child as if you were welcoming me. Well, just a few verses later in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, the opposite happens to the very disciples that Jesus just said this to. Let's read that. So Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them, the children, in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. So one of the things we've talked about is how this idea of greatness, of using a child, of talking about it's the servant, how foreign and difficult that would be for the disciples to really get their mind around that Mm -hmm. in this context. And we've admitted that we too (laughs) might struggle to define greatness as one who serves as well. But here we see a picture of how difficult it really was to understand what Jesus is driving at. Because again, just a few verses after Jesus puts a child in front of them and says, welcome this child, and by doing so, you're welcoming me. Welcome this child as an ambassador of the kingdom, as a representative of the kingdom. And when you do so, it's as if you're welcoming me. Right after that, they push the children away. Mm -hmm. The children are trying to come to Jesus and they rebuke the children and the parents and say, no, you're not supposed to come here. Understandably, the kids are noisy, right? Right, that's right. And we've got really important church work to do right now. 
right? Like we're with Jesus right now. We need to learn more from Jesus right now. We don't have time for the little kids, right? They're getting in the way of us doing the real important adult mm-hmm. conversation work that we need to do right now. Makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can just feel the conviction inside myself as I'm saying this because I think <laughs> of how often with my own children that I think I have something that I need to do that's greater, and I say that with air quotes, Mm -hmm. than welcoming this child in Jesus' name. And how does Jesus respond? It says he got indignant. That word means angry. Jesus gets frustrated here with the disciples. It's one of the few times that we see in the Bible Jesus getting frustrated, Jesus Mm -hmm. getting angry. That word only appears twice in Mark's gospel, and in both cases, Daniel, It's when somebody who is vulnerable is being victimized, which tells us something about the heart of Jesus. We could camp for a long time on that. We sure could, absolutely. And just one last note that I want to throw in about this story, because I don't know about you, but when I read something like, you need to receive the kingdom of God as a child in order to enter it, I start stressing about, okay, what does it really mean to receive the kingdom of God? Yeah. What do I need to do? How do I need to get my mind around this idea? As soon as we start doing that, we're not receiving it like a child, <laughs> right? Like it's, uh, we're not just approaching it with that humility of, man, this Jesus character is amazing and I want to be with him, which is how these children would be responding. So as we conclude our conversation on greatness, it feels upside down. Jesus has defined greatness in very different ways than we would define greatness. But as we also talked about earlier, maybe this is the real version of greatness, of being a servant, of laying down our lives and our preferences for others in the same way that he did for us. Hopefully you feel, again, some of that burden lifted as we think about what it means to be great. Because in our culture, there's a lot of pressure to strive to be great, and hopefully the peacefulness can wash over us. The burden can be lifted a little bit as we consider, you know, greatness, according to Jesus, isn't about putting all this pressure on doing the right things, on building a name for ourselves, on making sure that we're popular, on presenting ourselves as we've got everything together. Mm. Greatness in Jesus's eyes is literally as simple as approaching him just in the same way that a child approaches us. Hey, maybe we could all just take a nice deep breath right now. Yeah, I hope there is a collective sigh that's going out right now from the entire Discover the Word group, no matter where you are. As the group concludes this episode, there's an invitation here for us to become great in God's kingdom by being childlike in the way Jesus described and by taking on the nature of a servant and laying down our lives for others just like Jesus did. That's what it means to be great in his kingdom. Well, you're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And Discover the Word is part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, where for the last 80 plus years, we've been telling the story of Jesus thanks to the financial partnership of listeners and friends who share our mission to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And so if you'd like to give a one-time gift or you'd like to give a recurring monthly gift, as a Discover the Word partner. Well, then click on the Donate button at discovertheword.org. You can give safely and securely right there. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.